Well, this morning we do continue in our series, Why Church Still Matters. And one of the things that we've looked at throughout, uh, throughout the series is recognizing that the thing that makes church most challenging is also the thing that makes it most valuable, and that is people, that's others, individuals. Um, we've been talking and looking at the church by way of not just an organization and a structure or a building, but recognizing that when we look in history and we look through the Bible as, as it records God's history and human history, uh, we see that God begins to establish a group of people and that he works through them, and the church becomes a universal uh, gathering of individuals, and it's represented by local congregation, local individuals, like here right now, like we're gathered together. Uh, one of the things, an interesting trend that you'll see when you look in the Bible is in the Old Testament, there's certain themes that will emerge, certain uh, themes in, in how God's working. And one of the things we see in the Old Testament is that when God is, begins to work in the Old Testament before Jesus, kind of the history of how God was working through the chosen and moving through the nation of Israel to bring about the Savior for all mankind, for the most part, God worked primarily through individuals. And you might say, well, how can you say that? Because there's the nation of Israel. But if you look at the nation of Israel, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, if not, I just encourage you to just to read and look through some of the, the stories that are there. But if you look that the nation of Israel kind of went their own way, except for when God would establish an individual. He'd raise up a man or raise up a woman who would be mightily anointed by God. They would move in power. They would, they would lead the people uh, to be focused upon God. So God primarily worked through individuals in steering the, the influence, the community, and in, in influencing the nation. But when it comes to the New Testament, after Jesus has come and Jesus has died on the cross for, for our sin as he's risen to, to life again and he's been taken back to heaven, that we see that, that God begins, there's a shift, and God begins to work through gatherings. He begins to work through gatherings of individuals. He still works through individuals. We see him working through um, Paul. You just have to read through the New Testament, and you get this sense of how God's working through individuals. But we also see that he begins to work through the establishment of a gathering of individuals who have play, fa placed their faith in him, and that is the community of believers. Uh, and just because someone's in a church doesn't mean they're a part of the community of believers, but rather it begins by faith in Jesus Christ, that that's how we become a part of the church. Uh, a handful of weeks from now, we'll begin our next moving forward class, our membership type class. And as that begins, it's a three-week course. One of the things that we share in there is that there's some things that you may feel like you're still in the, in the grow and you're growing on and understanding more about the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives and understanding a number of things and steps of obedience. But one of the things that we share is, is a non-negotiable in being a member is that you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. You have to come to that place of relationship with him. And we don't ever want someone to confuse and think just because you choose to become a, a member of a church, that that all of a sudden makes you a member of the universal church, the body of Christ, that it begins in relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we see in, in, in Scripture, in the New Testament, that God begins to work through individuals. And as he works through communities of believers, gatherings of believers. And so a ex perfect example is all through the book of Acts. You can see Paul and some of the other disciples traveling. And as they're traveling and among the nations and traveling among the communities, they begin to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. And then they establish a local gathering of believers. And it's in those, that gathering of believers, one that was established that I'd like to look at for a few minutes this morning. It's found in Thess 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, in Acts chapter 17, you can find the full story, the details. But Paul uh, went and he began to preach and he established 
led individuals to faith in Jesus and established a local church in the city of Thessalonica. And as he established that church and began to teach, some individuals came and began to bring opposition and began to bring hardship against him and began to really try to make life miserable for him and for the other followers of Jesus. And it's in this setting of suffering and this setting of hardship that Paul writes to these believers who are established in the city of Thessalonica. So let's look at this. I want to read chapter 1. It's, it's 10 verses, but it gives you kind of a, a good picture, a good background of what's happening with this church. So verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God our Father uh, for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from God, uh, how you turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So Paul established this this community of believers, this, this church, this gathering in the city of Thessalonica. As I'd mentioned, that as he establishes this church, that there began, a group of individuals began to oppose him, and they stirred up a group against him and really tried to make life difficult and hard for him. And one of the things, we've talked about this on Wednesday, so if you're here and you're a part of us on Wednesday, this, this probably is not uh, unfamiliar to you because we've talked about it some different times. But one of the things that I'll notice in Scripture and a pattern that we'll see develop in, in Scripture is that when... God begins to do, or God is preparing to do uh, a significant work through an individual, or he's preparing to do a significant work through a community of believers or a gathering, or establishing in some way something significant. He's wanting to move by the power of his Holy Spirit. We'll see many times that before that work happens, that many times the enemy will try to, in some way, the devil will try in some way to oppose it to try to wear down those individuals who have placed their faith in God. And what I've specifically mentioned with this is that when it comes to understanding is I really believe that the enemy, the devil, the Bible makes it clear he's very real, that we have a very real enemy, the devil that opposes what God's doing, he opposes you. But what we see is that when, he, when God begins to work, I believe the enemy can, can look at patterns through history. He doesn't, doesn't know everything. Uh, in, in Ezekiel 28, talking about uh, the devil, it says that his wisdom is corrupted. So we know that he's not all-knowing. He doesn't know everything. In, in the book of Job, in Job chapter 1, it's talking about the devil, and it says there's a time when, when God calls the angels and they come and present themselves before him. And it says that the devil came with them and presented them himself to God and presented him before him, which again tells us that he's not all-powerful, that he's submitting himself into the power and the authority of God, that there's not this, this equal balance of power, but rather he is inferior to the power and the authority of God. Then when when he gives an account, he says, I've been going to and fro over the earth. So we see in that that he is not all present. He can't be everywhere at once. He's limited to time and space as to where he'll be. So we see these things about the devil. And one of the things that we do know about him and we can tell is that he believes that he can predictively see when things are happening with God's people. 
that there's certain patterns that develop when God's people begin to pray, when God's people begin to depend on the Holy Spirit, when God's people begin to move in, in a, sur- a greater surrender to God, that there's certain things that as they're submitted to that, that, they can, that I believe the enemy can predict and recognize that when these things begin to happen, the climate begins to shift and it begins to disrupt his kingdom. And I really believe the enemy does that. And so one of the things that, that he'll do is many times when he sees those patterns beginning to develop, I believe that he'll bring opposition and he'll bring hardship and he'll bring difficulty to try to discourage and try to wear down individuals from staying the course in those patterns. Much like a weatherman can see the pattern in history, the pattern in the weather and, rec- and predict that perhaps there's going to be weather, this type of weather in the day, I believe the enemy can recognize that. And so he's going to bring hardship and he's going to bring difficulty against you. And that's why I'll talk with spouses. And there's some here, I'm sure, that have had times where you have an unsaved spouse, whether an unsaved husband, unsaved wife, or you have an unsaved uh, child, an adult child, or are things happening or circumstances uh, in, in your workplace, that you begin to pray. And as you begin to pray, they've, they've recognized that, boy, it seems like things have gone from bad to worse with that individual. I say, as I begin to pray and lift that individual up to God, things have gone from bad to worse. And I'll encourage them in that as that is a specific sign that opposition is, is coming is that you've begun to kind of put your finger on the pulse of what's happening. That God is using you to call out and recognize uh, that area and really to really pray and, and align your heart and align your life with what God is doing. And so I see that in Scripture, and I see that uh, many times in our lives. And that's why I would encourage you today, if you're here, just kind of as a side note, if you're here this morning, uh, and you've got individuals or circumstances in your life you've been praying over, and you recognize that pattern of things going from bad to worse, is that's a great reminder to stay the course, that God is working, and that you're really aligning and, and calling out to God and inviting him to work in those circumstances. But many times we'll make the mistake of letting hardship or a difficulty or challenges be directional, directional in our lives, but they're never meant to be directional. They're never meant, when hardship comes, it's not meant to be directional in our lives. And many times if we, we do that, we back away from what I believe God is wanting to do. He's wanting to, to lead us through that. And the, many of the letters in the New Testament, what we've just read in 1 Thessalonians is a great example. So if Paul had allowed hardship or pain or difficulty to really dictate what he did, we would not have First and Second Thessalonians because he wouldn't have established those churches. If others in the Bible allowed hardship and pain to dictate their decisions in life, then we wouldn't have, uh, the book of Nehemiah would be a very short book. Uh, he sets out to build a wall, there's opposition, and he would be done. He'd be like, well, it's too hard, I'm not going to do it. But instead, he stayed the course, and God used him. Uh, books like Esther wouldn't even exist. That hardship comes, and, and she were to cower away from it. So we see that God uses individuals who are willing to stand up in the face of opposition, in the face of hardship, in the face of pain and difficulty, and stay the course. And when God finds those types of individuals and those groups of people, he can do incredible things through them. And so when I look at this, and I, I really believe that many times hardship and pain and difficulty and challenges in life, that many times those can be God's delivery system for what he wants to do in our lives. We just don't necessarily like the delivery system he uses to bring it. That he, he will use hardship. He'll, he'll never waste hardship. He'll never waste a trial. He'll never waste a difficulty. And those can be his delivery system of bringing us perhaps into a place of greater dependence or align, dealing with things within us or dealing with things in the circumstances that allow him to work in a greater measure. But I also believe when it comes to hardship 
and difficulty and pain uh, in life and challenges in life, that it begins to highlight one of the, one of the aspects of the community of believers that I, I really believe is important. And that is recognizing God's design of the body for the body to care for each other and to care for those who are in need. And so when it comes to, when it comes to uh, specifically the congregation, the gathering of believers, and understanding pain and difficulty and hardship, there's three things I'd love to just highlight for you to consider in understanding how God uses the congregation, how he uses the gathering of believers when individuals are going through hardship, when they're going through difficulty, when they're going through, through pain, whether it be circumstances of their own making, whether it be something the enemy is doing. I'm not one to, to try to give the enemy credit for things that he's not doing. Sometimes we, just, we do live in a fallen world, in a broken world. But recognizing that these things happen in life, and there are, there are three lessons that I think we can learn out of that when it comes to understanding hardship. So the first one I'd give you to consider when it comes to uh, hardship and understanding hardship in life is that hardship, first thing to understand is hardship offers the temptation and danger of isolation. Hardship offers the temptation and danger of isolation. Uh, our bodies have been designed with a with a, a physical sense, a physical recognition of pain. If this morning you were cooking something on the stove or perhaps you put on a hot cup of coffee and you weren't watching where, where you were at and staying aware of your, your surroundings and you were to set your hand on the hot burner or to touch the hot pot of coffee, that your natural response would be to withdraw, to pull back from that pain. You wouldn't have your hand sitting there on the burner and you're think, you wouldn't be sitting there thinking, wow, this is very unpleasant right now. I probably should move my hand. We wouldn't do that. I mean, we wouldn't. We would immediately, there would be a, a quick reaction before you even think about it. That is just a natural uh, alarm system that God has put into our human bodies. They say one of, the, one of the greatest dangers for the human body is to lose a sense of pain because there's a lot of damage that can happen to individuals in their bodies because they're not aware. They lose the sense of pain, so they're not aware when something is being harmed. But there's this natural response to recoil from pain. And when I look at that, and while it's completely natural and understandable when it comes to our physical bodies, unfortunately for many individuals when it comes to hardship, comes to pain, comes to difficulty in life, is that when hardship comes, when difficulty comes or challenges come in life, just like you would withdraw your hand very quickly from, from a hot stove or from pain, is that when an individual begins to encounter pain in life, many times they begin to, the temptation is to withdraw and to isolate themselves. We live in a very private society. It's very much about you know, your, your privacy matters. And, and so individuals many times just withdrawn to privacy and being private and not sharing the pain and the struggle that they're going through, the hardship that they're going through. And I really believe that that is a great, it's a great temptation, but it's also a great danger. I'd like to have you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, um, verses 8 and 9. And I want you to see this danger we can see it as 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. We've already talked about the fact that we have, there's a very real enemy, an adversary of your soul, the devil, that is there. And look what 1 Peter chapter 5 says. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to, to devour. Let's just pause there for a second. We'll come back and look at verse 9. But let me read it again. Be alert and of sober mind. Be alert and of clear mind. Be alert and of an understanding mind, of a discerning mind. It says, your enemy... In my Bible, I have that word, your, I have it circled. That it, it reminds me that it's personal. He's my personal adversary. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you have a very real enemy. 
we live in a culture that will, with, uh, with games and with movies and with entertainment, that will, I believe, try to desensitize our minds and desensitize our understanding to the spiritual realm. But it's so incredibly important for every individual sitting here this morning or listening in on a podcast is that the spiritual realm around you is far more real than the physical realm you're, you're experiencing right now. It's far more real. It's the spiritual realm that lasts, that moves into eternity. The, this natural realm will eventually pass away. And the enemy would love to do nothing more than to get you to feel like the, the spiritual realm is nothing more than just a, a media frenzy, nothing more than special effects, nothing more than, than just entertainment. But you have to remember, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the verse we're looking at, he says he's your enemy. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you are on the devil's hit list. There's no other way to say it. You are on his hit list. Now, you may not be as high on the list as others, depending on how active your faith is, how committed you are to Christ, how strong your testimony is. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you are on his list. He would love nothing more than to disrupt your marriage. He would do nothing, love to do nothing more than to mess up your testimony. He would love to get you to slip into immorality in some way. He would love to get you in some way to allow your mind to settle on things that would be less than who God has created you to be, to accept lies that he would slip in. That's why in Isaiah 54 it says, it says, no weapon formed against you will prosper, and every lying tongue that rises against you will cease. As it's recognizing the enemy loves to slip lies into your thinking. He loves to try to get you to, to mess up in some way, to even accept a, a, a lesser way of God's design for your life and understanding God's love and his care for you. And that's because he's a very personal enemy. He is your enemy. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says he's your enemy. It says he prowls around or roams around or searches around looking like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's always looking for the opportunity, the inroad, the access, the avenue to destroy. He's looking for anything that will give him, anything that would give him the upper hand, give him the advantage, he'll take it. But if it has in some way affects your soul, he'll take it. If it in some way affects your home, he'll take it. It says that he's looking for those inroads, and then I believe verse 9 gives us a good indication of some of the easiest prey that he finds. Verse 9, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the whole world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. But I believe some of the easiest prey that the enemy will find and will, will prey upon are, are Christians who are isolated, Christians who have withdrawn and have pulled themselves back. Peter is writing to believers, and he says one of the ways you can stand firm is you know you're not alone. You know you're not alone in your suffering. You know you're not alone in your hardship. You know you're not alone in your struggle. And I believe one of the greatest lies the enemy will sell individuals on is to this idea that no one else understands. You're in it. You're all alone. There's no one else who can really sympathize with what you're going through. No one else who can associate with your pain. And I believe that when we, when we play into that, that idea and that mindset, we become easy prey for the enemy because we become isolated. And when we become isolated, we allow our perspective to get skewed. Just think about how often you have been alone and you've been, perhaps you've been kind of wallowing in a, in a downward spiral and difficulty and, and pain, but you've not allowed someone in with you to, to begin to walk with you through it. Not to, to just have company in your sorrow, but to help, help lift you up out of it. And the longer we allow ourselves to sit isolated and alone, our perspective begins to shift. Our perspective begins to become focused just upon us and our sorrows and our woes. But I believe that when we play into that, we really allow the enemy easy access, easy gain, because we're not keeping our hearts connected to the community of believers, and we're buying into the idea of, of isolation and uh, the privacy that we think comes with it. 
My wife recently uh, shared with me a story that she had heard conveyed on a, one of the natural, like natural geographic type shows. And in the show, one of the things that the individual was talking about is this woman who had a pet uh, boa constrictor, a snake, and a, a large constrictor type snake. And as she had this pet snake, she was concerned because it wasn't acting normal. It wasn't behaving normal. It wasn't, hadn't been eating for several days. And so the vet began to ask these different questions. And he began to say, just a number of questions, trying to assess what was wrong with her snake, with her pet. And so he asked her, he said, he began, through, after going through a series of questions, he came to three or four more questions, and he says, do you, do you happen to let your snake, is your snake's aquarium, does it happen to be right by your bed? And she says, yes. He says, do you ever wake up at night and happen to find that your snake has climbed out of the cage and is laying curled up next to you in bed? And she says, well, yes. I mean, for me right there, I'm like, there's the problem. <laughs> the, the, the vet continues. He says, so do you, you find that he curls up next to you at night sometimes? Do you ever find it at night, you wake up, and instead of he being, him being all curled up nice and tight, he's laying out long, stretched out beside you like a stick? She says, well, yes. So she answered yes to all those questions, kind of baffled by the series of questions. He says, you need to know that your snake is readying himself, and he's sizing, him up, sizing you up to eat you. I don't know about you, but that's the time I find a new pet, okay? <laughs> Says the snake, her pet was sizing her up to eat her. And I, I look at that, and I think, I mean, this, the story itself is, is comical, scary, crazy, all in one. But how many of us give the enemy easy access to size us up just because we withdraw just because we focus on our pain, we focus on ourselves, we focus on our misery, and we never look for the avenues of care that God keeps sending our way through other believers, through other followers of Jesus to help get our focus off of our misery, off of our pain, off of our difficulty, and back onto Jesus. But I really believe that when we withdraw, we play right into the enemy's hands. That's why when you look in, in the book of Acts and the, the early formation of the early church, Acts chapter 4, I think, is one of the greatest examples of this. And we looked at this verse earlier in the series. But in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John have been persecuted. They've been threatened. And Acts chapter 4, verse 23 says, they went back to their own people and gathered together, shared what happened, and began to pray. But it's the value of being connected, not being isolated and alone. And I really believe every avenue, every bit of hardship that comes our way presents the temptation and the danger of isolation. The second thing I'd like to encourage you with when it comes to understanding hardship, specifically in the community of believers and the gift that God has given us in each other, is that hardship offers opportunity to demonstrate God's care for those who are hurting. That hardship offers opportunity to demonstrate God's care for those who are hurting. Just like I shared the example of if you were to burn your hand this morning, you immediately will recoil from that. You wouldn't think through all of these steps, but if you were to burn your hand, then there's probably your other hand in some way is jumping in and getting engaged, whether it be turning on the, the, the cold water and sticking your hand under it, or if in some way you've harmed yourself even more, your eye is looking for perhaps a rag or something that you can use to aid it. If you've fallen and you're, you're hurt, you've broken a leg, your mouth is engaged and calling out for assistance, that there's all these different parts of the body that immediately begin to engage without us even thinking about it, and that's part of God's design. 
It's not that you've just burned your hand or you've broken your arm and you're left wondering, well, how am I going to fix this? And, and you're, the rest of your body is not engaged. It naturally begins to engage and care for the hurting part. I want you to look with me in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse uh, 25, or verse 26. We looked at the body and the design that God has given in the body last week by way of the analogy he gives in that the human body becomes a picture of how God works through, uh, through our, our body as a congregation and how he functions. But look in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 12. It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, oh, you got ahead of me there. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. If you can go ahead. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And it just talks, it recognizes that as a body, when, when God has designed us as a, as a human body, it's really a picture of what he creates for us here as a congregation. And his design is that when one part is suffering, every part suffers with it. When one part is hurting, that there's a response from the other parts to care for it. Another verse that, that Paul wrote to the these, these same group of believers is in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds in Christ. He's recognizing that God has created you and me. He's created us to fit into part of being a body, part of a congregation, part of a local community of believers, so that when others are hurting or when we're hurting, that there's an avenue of, of the comfort of Christ that can flow. When I read what Paul told the believers here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that God's comfort flows into our lives so then his comfort can overflow. That I, I take that and I always remind myself, is that when I'm going through something, when I'm going through a hardship, I'm going through a challenge, when I'm going, facing a difficulty, God is always looking to bring someone into my life to be the avenue of his care, his comfort, the expression of, of who he is. Sometimes it's, it's through my wife, sometimes it's through one of my kids, sometimes it's through a friend, but it's, it's letting someone else's voice and things that he's speaking to them become an avenue that speaks comfort into my life. But then the second thing I'm reminded is that not only is he bringing someone into my life to bring care and comfort, but he's in turn preparing me and using, to use my life to be an avenue of his comfort to flow into others. That we always become an avenue, an overflow of his spirit into the lives of others so that we can demonstrate his love and his care for those who are hurting. And I think it's a reminder that we, we each have a part. We each have a significant part in this design of what God has. And one of the things that, I, that I've recognized over time with, when it comes to ministry is that we each have a part. That means we all have a responsibility to express when we're hurting. And that we all have a responsibility to step forward and care when others are hurting. Just over years in ministry, I've been around different churches and different individuals, both here and others. And, and I, I hear individuals going through real pain and real difficulty and real loss. And then in their pain and difficulty and loss, they'll kind of cap it all off with, it, it's, their summary was, and no one reached out to me. And no one cared for me. No one was there. And as I begin to talk with them about that pain and that loss and what they walk through, many times I'll find that they never took initiative to share it with somebody. They just assumed other people knew. But I just encourage you, one of the greatest avenues that God has given us to demonstrate his love and his care, a visible reminder of his invisible presence, is the local congregation, the local gathering of believers. And so when someone's hurting, to not be afraid to express it, not to assume that, that others already know I, a phrase that I've said before, and I know it's not original with me, but is that you can't know what you don't know. 
And so take time to express it, but then look for others that God wants to use to bring care, to bring be an avenue of his love and his grace. And we have a number of ministries here that, that are designed to help individuals who are hurting. And just to name a few, there's a, there's a bunch and a lot of individuals engaged on their own and finding avenues to care. But we've put together a, a deacon's ministry, similar to what you'll see in the book of Acts. But the goal is to come alongside people who are hurting. And as our, our deacon ministry, several individuals come together and they will, when they recognize there's someone hurting, someone in need, they'll come alongside them. It's not just it's not only limited to financial, but a lot of it happens to do when, when financial struggles and hardship comes, and our, our deacons will gather around them, they'll connect with them, they'll begin to walk them through getting, getting the help and the care, the assistance they need. Um, another ministry that we have, I think Denny and Joan Lois and, and Pat Lysak have done an incredible job. They've put together uh, a meal ministry designed specifically for shut-ins, for individuals who health and a number of things keep them from being able to be here consistently. They stay in touch with them and provide a, a loving meal and just care for them. And we have a sign-up even in the lobby for you to be a part of that if you want to at the Welcome Center. Uh, another incredible ministry that just continues to demonstrate the love and the care of Jesus in a very practical way is our ministry of Compassion and Connection. Compassion Connection is, is led by, uh, has been led by Betty Lou Morgan for a number of years, and I think, I see Betty Lou's bag. Harold and Betty Lou had been in Florida this, this past month. They've been gone, so welcome home. It's nice to have you home. But they've been gone for the month of uh, March and are back with us. But Betty Lou does an incredible job leading a team, finding individuals in, in need and in care in our, ministry, in our community and ministering to them. And something that just before they left on, on um, their time away, uh, Betty Lou just reached a place where she recognized it was time to retire, time to step down. And so they're really, and knowing how Betty Lou functions, there really is no such thing as fully retiring. Uh, just very invested, very much demonstrating the care and love of Christ and demonstrating Christ. But that's an area of ministry that's going to continue to forward, and we're going to take time to honor Betty Lou uh, more appropriately next week. But I look at those ministries, and I look at these individuals, and they're great examples of the care and the compassion, love of Jesus being de- demonstrated when individuals are hurting. And it's recognizing that the congregation, the community of believers, is meant to be one of God's delivery systems of his care and his compassion for those who are hurting. And then the third thing I would just give you this, this morning is that hardship always provides opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work. Hardship always provides opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work. So yes, there's opportunity for individuals, for other believers to step forward and to care for individuals that need to care for those who are hurting. But packaged within that hardship is there's always opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work. Look with me in verse 5. Verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Paul's talking to these believers, and he says, But the gospel came to you not simply with words. It came with power. The word he uses for power is the word dunamis. It's a word that we get our modern-day word dynamite from. But it speaks of power. It speaks of explosive power. And Paul says there was this explosive power in how the Holy Spirit began to minister to you. He began to minister just mightily in the delivery of God's word and the truth of his word. But then later as you look on in, in chapter 1, he says that the power of the Holy Spirit came in and broke off their, their, their bondage to the false gods brought them into places of freedom and just incredible things, these powerful works of the Holy Spirit. And I think many times we're we're very much drawn to very powerful works of how the Holy Spirit's moving. We want the experience. We love to hear how the Holy Spirit's working. But I want you to see something else of how the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of these believers. And and I believe it's something that is often and easily overlooked. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering 
with joy given by the Holy Spirit. If you could leave that, that verse on screen for just a second. He says, you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. So earlier in verse 5, he talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, and he comes with power, that there's this, this dunamis, there's this, this power, there's this explosive power of the Holy, how the Holy Spirit's working. But look now, he says, in severe suffering. That word severe isn't just put in for, um, for effect. It's not just put in to be kind of exaggerating the work. There's a couple of other places in the New Testament that the same word that's translated severe is used. One of them is found in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus is calling his first disciples. And as Jesus is calling his first disciples, they've been out on the lake fishing all night, and Jesus is sharing a message to those who have gathered. Then he turns to those disciples, and he says, why don't you push your, your, your boat back out in the water and cast your net on the other side? They said, Jesus, we've been, we've been at this all night. We've already been doing this. It's just there's no fish out today. And Jesus says, just trust me, just do it. And they go out, and they, they drop their net, and it says that there was a miraculous catch of fish, that it was so big the fish couldn't be counted, and it was so abundant, it was so severe, that the fish were falling out of the nets. That's the picture that is used when it uses the word severe. So it's this idea of overabundance, that there's so much suffering and hardship that these believers in Thessalonica are experiencing because of Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus. And he says that in the midst of it, he says, you welcome the message in the midst of severe, abundant, overflowing suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. But many times we can be attracted to these incredibly powerful ways that the Holy Spirit will work, how he'll move and what he'll do in a service, what he'll do in our lives. And those are incredibly powerful and, and incredibly welcome. But I believe one of the most significant and most overlooked works that the Holy Spirit does in our lives is the joy that he can and wants to produce in our lives in the midst of severe suffering. In the midst of your great crisis, the Holy Spirit wants to produce joy. He wants to produce his nature. Galatians 5 says the joy, of the, the joy is part of the nature, his nature in you. That he wants to produce his joy in you. That he never wastes an opportunity. He never wastes an ordeal, something you're going through. It's always opportunities to bring our lives into greater alignment with him. And there's something about, about the word that, that joy. It says that you produce joy in the midst of severe suffering. When you look in the Psalms, in Psalm 45 specifically, the psalmist is talking about the Holy Spirit, and he talks about the Holy Spirit this way. He says that he produces the oil of joy. The Holy Spirit is described as the oil of joy. Well, I'm not sure if you're familiar with oil and how familiar you are. Many of you are, but in Old Testament, New Testament, we think about oil and what it symbolizes, but many times we're not familiar with how that oil was created. Oil in, in biblical times was created, even like today, is olives were taken and they were put somewhere that they could be crushed. And as they were completely crushed, then the oil would be released. And that oil would be re released, and that, would, that oil would become something that was significant all throughout the culture. But it took the, the olives being crushed to produce the oil. And I look at that, and I'm, I'm reminded that the Holy Spirit is called the oil of joy. And that, remind, that encourages me, and I hope it encourages you, that when you might be in times and places in your life of some of the most intense crushing, some of the most severe challenges and setbacks and disappointments and delays that you've ever faced, that it's in the midst of that crushing that if we look for and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work, it may not be in the big, explosive, powerful minutes and moments that we would look for, but instead that there's this severe crushing that comes in our lives, and if we keep our perspective right, keep our focus right, keep our anchor strong in who he is, that he begins to release the joy of his Holy Spirit in our lives because he's, he's always looking for avenues to work. That's why in James chapter one, uh, it tells us, and we'll look at this in a couple of weeks in greater detail, 
But in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It says, Consider it pure joy when hardship comes. Consider it pure joy when difficulties come. Because everyone carries the potential and the opportunity for God to do some of his greatest work in you. I've been reading a book um, in my own private time. Just the book, I came across it. It was quoted in another book. And, and, and so I hunted it down. And um, it's out of print. But it, it's written by John of Lansbury. It was written, I think, in like 13, 1400s. And John of Lansbury, he wrote a, a book. And it's just almost little devotional chapters, just a couple of pages per chapter. But the book is called A Letter of Je- from Jesus Christ to a Soul That Loves Him. And in this book, he writes first person, just kind of as a letter from Jesus to someone, uh, just wanting to grow and, and knowing him more. And just very simple, very gentle, but very direct things that God is just using this book to call out in. But one of the things, a quote that he, he uh, shared that I want to share with you, if you could share that quote. It says, remember to accept gladly the crosses I send your way. It says, remember to accept gladly the crosses I send your way. There's another quote very similar to this in the book where he says, he says really, consider any day that you've missed that you haven't found a cross a day that was lost. But it says, remember to accept gladly the crosses I send your way. You know the crosses, we, we can talk about the cross, we can talk about suffering, there's a number of things we can attach to it. But the best way you and I can look at when we, when we read in scripture, like when Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Or like here in this quote where he says to gladly accept the crosses I send your way, is the cross is continually an invitation to die to ourselves. The cross is continually an invitation to say no to self and yes to Jesus. And he says to not just accept them, but to gladly accept them. That takes the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I began just next to this quote in, my, my, in that book I wrote, how many, how many different ways do the crosses come to us each day? The cross comes disguised as difficult people. The cross comes disguised as hard challenges in life. The cross comes disguised as setbacks. They all, it comes disguised in a number of ways. But it says to get yourself to a place where you gladly accept those crosses as they come. And we accept them because every cross is an invitation to draw closer to Jesus. And every cross is an invitation to allow his work, greater work in us that releases a greater work of his Holy Spirit in us. And so I just encourage you this morning as you're here, we talk about hardship, and you might hear me saying, well, consider it pure joy when hardship comes to gladly accept the hardships that come your way. And you might say, well, what is that about? And friends, we don't go looking for hardship. We don't go looking for challenges, but fact of life, they do come. And how we respond to those really carries a lot of weight in what God wants to do in our lives and what he wants to do through our lives. And I really believe, as I said earlier, one of the, the, the best things we can do is to, in all things that we face and all challenges that come our way, that we continually look to, um, to orient our lives around his presence to continually be aware of his presence. And one of the greatest visible reminders of his invisible presence is the body of believers that he connects us with. That's meant to be a picture of his love, his care, and his compassion. As I've already said earlier, friends, the most important decision you can make is not to become a member of a church, not to say, this is the church I'm gonna start attending. The most important decision you can make is what you do with Jesus. If you place your faith in him, And Jesus says faith in him begins by coming to a place we acknowledge our need for him. We acknowledge we need him to create a new life in us. We confess our need for him, and and that involves a repentance or a denouncing, a turning away from sin. 
If you're here this morning and you've yet to make that decision to follow Jesus, you can do one of two things as communion comes, is they're going to pass the, the tray your way, and this is a visible reminder of the body and the sacrifice that Jesus offered on our behalf. And so as, the, as that comes to your, your seat, if you've yet to make that decision for Jesus Christ, then know that the best thing you can do if you've not, if you don't, you're not ready to make that decision is to pass that tray to the person next to you and they'll recognize that you see the significance of what we're doing. But then for, for others, if you're here and you want to make that decision to place your faith in Jesus this morning, to give him control of your life, you can talk with God right where you're seated there. And then when the communion tray comes, you can receive it and we'll take it together and you'll take it knowing that you've placed your faith in Christ and he is producing his life in you. So I'm going to invite the men and women to come begin to serve, and our worship team will begin to lead us in song.